Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Tomorrow is World Asthma Day. How do you know if you have asthma? And if you do, what are the signs that you might need to consider a different type of therapy than what you have been doing? Well, today I am joined on the line by Dr. Matt Lau. He is a expert in allergies and asthma at Kaiser Permanente, and we are going to be focusing on asthma in celebration of World Asthma Day and talking about some of the latest in therapies that have come out even in the last couple of years that have really helped people to breathe better with ease. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Lau. Thank you, Kathy. It's my pleasure, and I'm just so excited to speak with you today and 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 share uh, information that might help the community. And that's the whole goal of the show, to help people understand a little bit more about medical conditions. And in this case, it's about asthma. Now, not everything that wheezes is asthma, but sometimes wheezing could be a sign that you have to get your breathing checked out. How might someone know if they have asthma? What kind of symptoms might they experience? The symptoms of asthma can range. It can depend on the person. Most commonly, the symptoms to look for would be coughing, wheezing, which is a whistling sound in the chest, chest tightness, and even shortness of breath. So that would happen, you know, I I think of those symptoms and I think, boy, if I try and do some sort of major exercise exertion beyond what I can do, I'm going to feel some of those symptoms, and it's probably just because I'm out of shape. How do you know? Is it is it that you get these sort of symptoms of coughing and wheezing even at rest? Is it only with activity? How would you know the difference? Well, you're absolutely right that it can be difficult to figure out whether is it asthma or is it some other condition or that a lack of conditioning you're absolutely right also that one of the signs of asthma would be, yes, it can occur with exercise, but it can also occur at rest. It can wake you up in the middle of the night. If it starts doing that, or with simple laughing and talking, that would be a sign that you've got, uh, there's a high, higher chance that you have asthma going on. Are there certain age groups where it's more likely to be diagnosed or less likely? It can. Well, asthma can occur at any age. It can flare at any age. Most commonly, asthma tends to begin early in life, frequently in childhood and teenage years. But sometimes it's underdiagnosed, and people don't get diagnosed until they're older in life. But it might be something rare if someone's never had asthma at, like, 75 that it's they probably have to have some other things checked out before we assume asthma, I would think. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think you start thinking about things like, well, were they a smoker? Is it complicated by tobacco use and COPD? Other things come into play. I think a really good, helpful point would be if it starts earlier in life and if they have other classically allergic symptoms like nasal allergies, hay fever, or allergic eczema, those are going to increase your risk that your wheezing cough or chest symptoms 
might be asthma related because you have these other markers of comorbid conditions that travel with with asthma. So if you have these other like allergies or or you mentioned hay fever or some some nasal issues, you know, sometimes that groups together with this irritated kind of response to things in the environment and it could go along with asthma. So it sounds like that particular the complex of symptoms could be related. Now, if, you, if you're told you have it as a child, do you ever grow out of it? I've had quite a few patients say, well, I had asthma as a child, but, but now I don't have it anymore. Is that common? That's a very common story, especially with males who have more symptoms with asthma at a young age, and then as they hit their teens and older, it can uh, remit to a significant degree. And interestingly, females tend to have it more onset, a little bit older in the teens versus the boys. Uh, It can improve, but a lot of times, depending on uh, what kind of studies are done, that it can lay dormant somewhat and come back later in life, depending on the kind of factors uh, that the person encounters. So, yes, it can improve. Yes, it can stay away, but it can also come back later in life. Yeah, I've had a couple of folks say, you know, I don't have a problem except for after I get sick. Then I have this lingering tightness in the chest that takes a while to get better. And we kind of attribute that to their previous history of of asthma. Now, how do you officially get diagnosed? Is there... Based on is it based on symptoms? Are there certain lung tests that you need to do? Is there any particular you know in my world? How do you diagnose diabetes? Well, you check a sugar, and you know it either is or it isn't, or it's borderline. But it's a little bit more subtle for asthma. How how would you diagnose it? The usual uh, uh, consensus about how to diagnose asthma is it has to have the right symptoms, like we just talked about. The physical examination typically finds other markers of allergic disease, wheezing on the physical examination of the lungs, or mucus in the lungs, a kind of sound. So your doctor's exam is an important part of that. And then, as you had just mentioned, there are objective lung function measurements that are looking at how open is the flow of air reflecting inflammation or the absence of inflammation in your lungs. So lung function tests are something that either a primary care physician or an asthma specialist uh, would be able to provide to measure uh, if your airways are narrow, because that's an important aspect of asthma um, uh, that, that helps diagnose it. If the airways are significantly more narrow than normal, that would partly make the criteria uh, or definition of asthma. So it sounds like it's a multifaceted diagnosis that you may have one symptom and you may not have the other, but if you put all the pieces together in careful connection with your with your provider, you may wind up getting this diagnosis. And for folks who, who are told that they have it, what are the basics of treatment? I mean, we often think about inhalers, and you use an inhaler every time you have a problem, and that's what fixes it. But not necessarily. That, that may not work for everybody. What are some of the simple treatments that people who have asthma only every once in a while can consider doing? So some of it is preventative. 
one of the most important things that can prevent asthma attacks is knowing what your triggers are. So if your triggers are, for many people, viral infections that really flare their asthma, they could do things like make sure their immunizations against influenza is up to date, um, going to put a plug in for COVID vaccines. So that's a preventative route. And then the other thing are allergens. So if you know what your triggers are, like dog or cat dander or dust mites, those would be things that you would try to minimize exposure. That's going to be a preventive thing. And then some people have even medications that flare their asthma. Um, NSAIDs, like aspirin, Motrin, Advil-type products, those in some individuals can flare their asthma very badly. And uh, another example would be things like sulfites and wine. So knowing what your triggers are can go a long way. Yes, there are medications your doctor can give you, but trigger avoidance is it's a very simple, basic uh, important step. Well, that sounds like it's step one. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And when we come right back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Matt Lau of Kaiser Permanente about what are the steps to identify your triggers. And once you do and you avoid them, if you still have symptoms, what's next? We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Matt Lau from Kaiser Permanente. He is an expert in asthma and allergies, and we are celebrating World Asthma Day tomorrow. That would be May 3rd. And we're talking about how you get diagnosed with asthma and what are the first steps in treatment. And as you mentioned, Dr. Lau, you said, if you know what triggers it, don't keep doing that. Well, it sounds like it's simple information, but actually, it may be one of the hardest steps for a lot of folks. Triggers could be pets. It could be other things that somebody is encountering. And they may want to continue to live in a household with some of these things. But there are some ways they can work on trying to prevent exposures. I know for certain folks, if you need to have filtered air or air-conditioned air or, you know, not having rugs in your space or making sure that they're vacuumed regularly. And maybe if you're the one with asthma, you're not the one doing the vacuuming. So there may be some environmental controls people can do. What are the common things that you hear folks are successful with with altering in their environment? I would say it is. it sounds, as you said, straightforward uh, to avoid cat and dog dander. But if they're a trusted member of the family. It's emotionally very hard. Some things like keeping the pet outdoors is one option. Once they're indoors, it is difficult to avoid the dander, which can be very sticky in some cases like cat dander. Having an air filter, a HEPA filter in the bedroom may help if you enclose the room run the air filter and air conditioning and keep the pet out of the bedroom, bathing the pet in warm soapy water weekly if they allow you to do that can reduce some of the allergens. And uh, dust mites are another big allergen thing, like you talked about, moving carpeting and stuffed toys. It's a simple, simple thing you can do. 
but for children, especially trying to reduce or remove the stuffed toys on their bedding, and, and, and you wash the linen in hot water or a hot dryer every one to two weeks, that can still go a long way in reducing symptoms. And of course, not smoking around, uh, not being around tobacco smoke or secondhand smoke or quitting smoking, that would also be hugely helpful. So let's say that you're really good and you do all those things and you still have occasional episodes where your asthma acts up. What's next? So a lot of people try their best. So uh, when they still have symptoms or the allergens are not avoidable, as we just talked about, pollens, molds are difficult to avoid. There's a variety of medications. Now, there's two Nowadays, uh, there are two basic tracks of medication therapy. One is your old traditional track. We talked about this before, where you use a separate inhaler that relaxes tight airways if your symptoms are occasional. That could be by itself adequate. And then there are people who use inhaled steroids or anti-inflammatory inhalers that reduce the buildup of mucus and inflammation in the airways. So that's a more preventative strategy for people with frequent symptoms, usually three times a week or more, need those preventive controller meds. Two separate inhalers, it gets confusing for some people. Um, and what they have now is an option if your asthma is significant enough to have a combined inhaler that functions as both maintenance and as a reliever. So it's one inhaler that does both, this new approach of using uh, certain types of inhaled steroids combined with a bronchodilator that's long-acting, we call it SMART therapy. That stands for single maintenance and reliever therapy, SMART therapy. And this has been uh, uh, encouraged by uh, consensus experts and evidence for several years now, and it's it's uh, uh, one of our preferred therapies over having just a, a maintenance controller uh, and reliever separately. Um, but the traditional tract is still acceptable. It's just that this is an even more effective therapy. So what would be an example of a smart therapy? So the critical thing, there are multiple brands of Inhaled steroids with a 12-hour bronchodilator, we call long-acting bronchodilator or long-acting beta agonist. And there are many brands, but the key thing is that the long-acting bronchodilator that relaxes tight airways, in that, in that combination, in order to work for SMART, has to be fast-acting. That only leaves two uh, uh, medication options commercially available. Uh, one has an inhaled steroid that's budesonide. The other has mometazone. And they, they, they both, they're different inhaled steroids with the different brands, but the bronchodilator part that relaxes tight airways has to be quickly but long-acting too is called formoterol. So um, check with your doctor for smart therapy. Not just any inhaled steroid with a bronchodilator in it is going to work. Only certain ones. Now, you mentioned there's two different pathways, and the old pathway is good and the new pathway is good. 
Is there one that is superior to the other? That is a really good point to make. The reason why the smart therapy, where it's one inhaler covering two different things, rescue and maintenance, is considered superior is that it has been shown more effectively than traditional therapy to be able to decrease asthma exacerbations that are severe and need oral steroids. It cuts that risk of severe exacerbations by about 50%. Uh, That is a huge breakthrough uh, because just increasing your inhaled steroid alone by itself was the old way of handling exacerbations. And it has not been shown to be terribly effective. Even if you quadruple the dose short term of inhaled steroids alone, uh, that's not considered as, as effective. So for those people getting a lot of ER visits or exacerbations, you do have to look at, am I taking my preventive medication correctly and as often enough? Is it strong enough? but also to consider whether this smart therapy might be the right uh, approach for you. Well, and that's that's something that I think is that individual discussion that you have with your provider. I like the fact that you mentioned, first off, make sure you're using it correctly. So, you know, I remember when I first started in medicine and I would ask people, you know, can you demonstrate how you use your inhaler? We would often use a demonstration inhaler so they weren't taking too much medicine. And I got to tell you, I've seen some real interesting ways that people show how they use it and it's not really the best way to do it. If you had to describe to someone over the radio, because you are, how to best use the traditional forms of inhalers, the ones that are not powdered in a disc or anything like that, what would be some simple tips people need to keep in mind? I think uh, oftentimes inhalers are in these, they call puffer devices or meter dose inhalers. Oftentimes you have to shake them up first they always come with instructions. And, and in today's world, you can always look on online and see videos, for one thing. I think that would probably be the most practical solution. But it's, it's always good to you have an open mouth technique where you open your mouth, you have the opening of the inhaler after you've shaken it, and maybe two inches away from the mouth, you'll You'll actuate it so there's one single puff, and you're going to open them up and inhale slowly and fully and hold it for 10 seconds, and then let it out. And if it's a two puffs twice a day type of inhaler that's preventative, then once you catch your breath, you can take the you can repeat again for the second puff. So a lot of people they try to do two inhalations at once, uh, two two puffs per inhalation, and I would tell them it's one puff and one inhalation each time. Don't try to rush it to get the best delivery. And some people need to use a spacer device, but I would say uh, a practical thing is just looking on the, on the web, looking at you know, things like YouTube, uh, how to use an inhaler, and, and that's probably a good, a good place to start. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Matt Lau from Kaiser Permanente about the latest therapies that are out there for asthma and what are some of the new treatment options available. We'll be right back. 
Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we have Dr. Matt Lau. He is an allergy and asthma expert at Kaiser Permanente and Tomorrow is World Asthma Day, May 3rd. So we've been talking about asthma today and how you know you have it and what are some of the basics of treatment. Are there some new ways that asthma is treated even beyond using inhalers these days, Dr. Lowe? Oh, I'm glad you asked about that, Kathy, because some of the tremendous research about studying about asthma and especially the allergic component that that uh, uh, results in inflammation and that type of inflammation we call TH2 type or eosinophilic, that has the name of the type of cell uh, that's causing the inflammation. A lot of that can be blocked by some of these injectable medications, which are non-steroids. Steroids work. Steroid shots and pills work for severe cases of asthma. The problem is that they have bad side effects with long-term use. So for people with chronically severe asthma who need steroids or, 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 or have symptoms despite being on some steroid uh, pills, the, these injectable medications we call we term the term that collectively groups them together is called biologics. And they're commercially available and FDA approved. And they block the kind of inflammation that normally steroids would be used for. Uh, but they're injections that can be tolerated and, and have less side effects for the long-term control of severe asthma. Now, you've mentioned severe so this might not be the type of therapy for someone who has mild asthma that flares less than three times a week. They may actually do well doing the controller mechanisms like you talked about with avoiding triggers and using the short-acting inhaler as needed. But when you move to this moderate to severe category, that may be where these particular biologics have a niche. What type of individual do you think would be most appropriate for biologic therapy? As we said before, when, when we say the terms mild, moderate, and severe asthma, there's, there are particular uh, uh, definitions of that that your physician can help work with you. And if they feel uncomfortable, an uh, asthma specialist can help you with that. But that severity of, uh, for, for severe asthma that might, we might be thinking about uh, biologic injections uh, would be they're having symptoms daily and even throughout the day, and that they wake up at night several times a week. They can't function well, uh, and they're needing their albuterol reliever, if they're on that, several times a day, and needing steroid pills more than, more than twice a year. That would be a person we're thinking that might be a candidate if we can't control them with other therapies. The cost of these biologics are quite high, and so that would be the one thing prohibitive uh, against everyone just being on that. 
Now, because it actually acts similar to the steroid in the way that it can block inflammation, <clears throat> could it also make someone be at a slightly higher risk of developing an infection? That's a good question. It doesn't, I would not say that they work exactly like steroids. Actually, they're monoclonal antibodies, which blocks the inflammation and they don't increase the risk of infection overall, not like bacterial infection. Uh, so it's not going to suppress your immune system the way that steroid pills or shots might do so. A steroid pill and shot is basically like a big atom bomb that blocks a, a large part of your immune system. Uh, I would say the biologics are more like a smart bomb. It's very narrow in its effect, and it doesn't increase your chance of having pneumonias. If you have a parasitic infection, now that could be a problem, and so it's good to be evaluated by someone who's comfortable with uh, that medication uh, to make sure that you don't have a parasitic infection that might be um, uh, aggravated by being on a biologic. Now, I bet you've had people that have done remarkably well in the biologics if they don't have to use the frequent steroid, either injections or pills, multiple times a year. Have you seen that type of response for that type of case? So the response, I think the response is best if the patients are selected the way that the medication was designed for. So... Uh, patients with eosinophilic type of asthma, that's a type of airway inflammation resulted if they're allergic or they have a lot of allergic antibodies we call IgE. The more specific they mat that they match the indication for that bio individual biologic, of which there are several types, uh, the, the better the outcome. But I have myself seen tremendous night and day game-changing results and it's been very very pleasing and rewarding to see patients get their lives back i can only imagine if you can't breathe with daily activities to be able to have that restored is is an incredible feeling for the patient but also like you mentioned it's it's really a reassuring benefit for the providers, too, to know that this, this type of therapy is really working. Where do you see the next step going in asthma care? Is there another frontier we have yet to discover? You know, these biologics are not have not been around that long. I think it's going to take a number of years till we get the best understanding as to which patients match up the best with which biologics. They all have their different uh, niche, and having a clear understanding which works best so it's more personalized medicines, more targeted therapy. Not as Asthma is a heterogeneous disease, and what that means is everyone's a little different, and that means their therapy probably has to be a little different. It's going to take a while for us to figure that out, and I think the next five years, we're going to get much better at it. And there's going to be, there are new increasing agents in that realm that are 
that are that are going to be significant. So uh, this is going to be a really important important uh, therapy going forward. I think that's a big one, and we're always looking for ways to prevent um, getting asthma or allergic disease and. And the primary prevention of, of asthma is a, is a big thing um, that I think we, we can, we'll be learning more and more about in the next couple of years. All right. Well, I definitely want to thank you for helping me celebrate World Asthma Day by sharing with us your expertise. That's Dr. Matt Lau at Kaiser Permanente. And tomorrow, May 3rd, World Asthma Day. So if you have, or someone you love has asthma, it is time to think about what is your therapy and is it working as best as you want it to? And talk with your provider to find out if there's some alterations that you might need to make to help you to breathe better. I want to thank Dr. Lau for sharing his expertise with us today. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then.